Today is the 15th of July, 2014, and this is episode 127. This program is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Cryptocurrency is a new field of study. Consult your local futurist, lawyer, and investment advisor before making any decisions whatsoever for yourself. Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin, a twice-weekly show about the ideas, people, and projects building the digital economy and the future of money. My name is Adam B. Levine, and today we're pleased to bring you part three of our 51% Solution series. On today's episode, Tim Swanson, self-described Bitcoin realist, lays out the facts on mining, Bitcoin, 51% attacks, and some of the proposed solutions. Tim provides another perspective on this multifaceted topic. Then, we lighten things up with a visit from Tatiana Moroz, who recently launched Tatiana Coin, which, full disclosure, I've been involved with since the beginning, failed to meet its funding goal but taught some valuable lessons and led to a rethinking of what tokens can be used for that resulted in a new system we're pioneering called TCV. That's Token Controlled Viewpoint. I'm not going to get into it too much here, but basically you have an account with Let's Talk Bitcoin.com. In order for us to give you your weekly LTBC rewards, we ask you to give us an address that you create and maintain yourself at counterwallet.co. We can then look at that address or another private one, and if you have any LTB coin on your account, we can have a, a page load a special forum for you that's invisible to anyone else who doesn't have that LTB coin on their account. It's, of course, very much larger than forums. The idea can be applied to any type of permission, role, enhancement, or restriction and individual tokens can be made more valuable by other systems honoring them for use within their system. It'll be out on the front page of Let's Talk Bitcoin in about a week and integrated into the website by next. I call it Token Controlled Viewpoint. The work with Tatiana Coin was the genesis of the idea, but we don't actually talk about that in the interview. I don't usually like to monologue, but I'm trying to be more open and not so time-delayed with communicating what's happening with our ongoing experiment. But first, we're talking about mining centralization. 51% attacks, risks, realities, and proposed solutions. Ladies and gentlemen, Tim Swanson. Hi, it's uh, great to be here. Thanks for having me on, Adam. Uh, so again, my name is Tim. I do market research in this space. And uh, we're going to talk about some of the issues revolving around centralization of mining. Uh, I know uh, Adam and uh, Andreas have talked a little bit about the basics. Uh, just to go again, maybe a slight different way of, of seeing what the financial costs are on uh, any given day, it's, it's the current token price is about $2 million is spent on, on mining. So most people, unfortunately, think mining is magical, that it's cheap or even free, but it's just none of the above. So if, if you do it all together throughout a whole given year at a $600 token value, you, you spend about $730 million in capital and operating costs spent securing this network. And that's really a lower bound number. The upper bound is probably two to four times that amount because you have people operating losses or people externalizing costs through botnets and so on. Uh, and it, it, there's a, f a funny statement I saw on Reddit a few months ago that you know somebody was bragging about the fact that $600 million worth of irreversible uh, money or $600 million worth of capital has been destroyed essentially that cannot be reversed. And this is not exactly a good marketing tool. <laughs> I mean, you don't have uh, automobile automobile companies like Lexus bragging about the fact that, that their parent company spent a billion dollars burning you know fuel or whatever to make their new engine. So this happens in any depreciating capital area, in any industry where the, the, the actual uh, 
capital is ends up being used, such as fans. And so you have these data centers that have to replace every three to five years. So that's the lifetime of the actual CPU at the data center. And in ASICs, it's much, much more significantly fast. It's about four to six months, if not less. So it costs real money and investors want to recoup their costs. So they will end up gravitating towards solutions that provide a reliable rate of return. And this leads to industrial scale mining in centralized locations. What miners are faced with is then this incentive to create more lottery tickets for the chance of actually winning. So miners, uh, again, are they're incrementing the knots in hopes of getting this lucky number. If the listeners are interested in, in, in hearing, um, Manny Rosenfeld actually had a, a good explanation. I'll, I'll probably write an article about this and post um, some of these links that I'm talking about. But uh, his explanation basically is, you know, once you've run through these values of nonces, you have to reset it. So this is this continual, you know, scratch off lottery. That's another way of, of, of referring to this process. Um, anyways. So you have an incentive to throw as much hash rate as possible. Um, and we would semantically refer to this economies of scale. Uh, so whoever gets to the fastest amount of hash rate for the lowest amount of money, they have an incentive to continue on doing this. So you have this hash rate war going on in the last four or five years. Uh, the problem, however, is, is there's a, there's an equation that represents what actually happens. It's called MV equals MC. So the marginal value of the currency, or in this case, a Bitcoin, essentially in the long run equals the marginal cost of securing it. So collectively, most of the mining labor force will not achieve any accounting profit, let alone an economic profit. Economic profit means the opportunity for cost for gone in mining um, is actually greater than actually mining itself. So what else can you be doing besides mining? Um, obviously, I'm not going to win any friends by saying something like that, but that's pretty much what the, the bottom line looks like. What, what, what ends up happening is most miners actually just re rely solely on the appreciation of the token to pay for the costs. And would, they would just be better off if they just... Uh, bought tokens and, and expected them, you know, just, just held them as, as, as speculators. So coupled with the automatically adjusting uh, difficulty rating, proof of work uh, through Hashcash and Script, by the way, these are not the only two, but th those particularly ones, along with the automatically adjusting difficulty rate, rate, ensures that basically the marginal value of a token in the long run equals the marginal cost of securing the network. So that's why I was saying at the very beginning, it costs about $730 million to secure the network this year based on the current token prices. Uh, Satoshi actually himself, he saw this um, early on in, in the original FAQ, he, he mentioned that when Bitcoin start having real exchange value, the competition for coin creation will drive the price of electricity needing, needed for generating a coin close to the value of the coin. So again, MV equals MC. There's actually a, a really cool chart. I'll try to link to it in, 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 the, in this subsequent article. There's an engineer named Dave Hudson, and he runs a website called Hashing It. And if listeners are interested, there's a particular entry called The Gambler's Guide to Bitcoin. And he explains how he ran a Monte Carlo simulation 10 million times. And he found out that you need to be a gambler to want to bet on the odds of basically either solo mining or running in a small mining pool. Basically, there's financial incentives based on this simulation that show that investors what they want. They want a stable, reliable flow. Um, again, you need to go see the illustration itself. But the idea is this. Anything lower than these specific odds make you less likely to win that special number. So there's a built-in financial incentive for professional miners to come in, build these industrial scale centers to recoup those costs in the most efficient and reliable way, which leads to incentives to making centralized locations and so on. With all this said, I have a list of solutions that people might be interested in, in looking at. Again, I'll, I'll try to have these in links later on. Uh, first two people I'm going to mention um, actually are going to be in a de debate, I believe, on this show at some point, uh, Mike Hearn and Peter Todd. Mike Hearn uh, is, a, is a Bitcoin core developer, 
And his, his big notable thing now, he's working on Lighthouse, which is a crowdfunding system built onto the blockchain. He had an interview back in April uh, on money and tech, and he explains the centralization problem and how you know, th this is the same things I just mentioned. There's, there's incentives to try and, and pool together as much hash rate as you can because of variance and so on. Peter Todd, he's, uh, he actually had a lengthy thread about this uh, idea. He says, how a floating block size limit inevitably leads towards centralization. I'll link to that later on. But his solution, I'm sure you guys, have, listeners have heard it at some point, is a tree change is really clever. And that was in episode 104. He also had a recent interview with a group called I Am Satoshi. And in part two, he talks about how when block sizes get bigger. So right now, uh, if listeners are wondering, the block size on any given day, average block size is about 500K, 400K, and the max built into the code is one meg, one megabyte. And that could be changed just arbitrarily. You could, you could move it up to a gigabyte or whatever it wants. But in, in practice, the actual network has less than like one transactions per second if you actually look at the actual, how, how the th throughput goes through. But his, his point on, on this is, as if you want to compete with an RTGS, a real-time growth settlement platform, you need to increase the, the block size so that way you could do a thousand transactions per second or two thousand transactions per second. But in order to do that, you need to have large gigantic blocks that, that would squeeze out all the marginal players who don't have, for example, big fat bandwidth at home or large disks and so on. So his, his solution was tree chains. And somebody has to pay for all this, obviously. So here's some other, uh, if listeners are interested in actual uh, solutions that have been proposed the last few weeks. Uh, Two-phase proof of work from Hacking Distributed. And the authors of that are Ite Eyal and Iman Sirer, or Sire. I'm, I'm horrible with names. Sorry about that, guys. They actually got a lot of attention. And there's actually several others. Let me, let me go through those real quick. Just the names of, of what's going on. Uh, proof of Activity is a new paper uh, from... Four different guys, uh, Charlie Lee, who created uh, Litecoin, Alex Mizrahi, Mizrahi he, he does the Chroma Wallet, which is a color coin project. Many Rosenfeld, he's been in the space for a long time. He actually came up with the first idea of a color coin, I believe. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, proof of stake. And then Ido Bentoff, he's an academic in Israel. Uh, the full title of the paper is called Proof of Activity, Extending Bitcoin's Proof of Work via Proof of Stake. They identify uh, three different areas where you have tragedy of the commons that take place within Bitcoin and they propose solutions. And we could talk about that maybe a little bit later. Another person to, to look at if listeners are interested is a guy named Andrew Miller. His handle is Socrates1024. He's really, really deep into the space. He's a PhD student at the University of Maryland, and he has some solutions. One, he's proposed several since the GHASH incidents last month, but one of the things he's, he's been pushing is Permacoin. Um, the idea is a, is a two for one, basically doing this decentralized um, cloud service in tandem with uh, Bitcoin itself. And uh, I'll explain that a little bit later on. Another potential solution, Stephen Reed has something called a Bitcoin co cooperative proof of stake. It's got a long thread on Bitcoin. Talk about that. He's funding that out of his own pocket. So it's actually got some money, apparently. Delegated proof of stake is from Daniel Larimer. Daniel Larimer and his brother have been working on something called BitShares. By the way, I don't endorse any of these things. I'm not. I'm just saying, you know, <laughs> this is what's out there. Uh, and anyways, Daniel, he, he published this paper on explaining how you could use a proof of stake ledger to create consensus and it won't be centralized. At least that's what it is on paper in theory. Vitalik Buterin had a long, excellent post about a week ago explaining the challenges of mining and how Ethereum could potentially uh, fix this. 
Uh, <laughs> I'm going to try and uh, see if I could get him to agree to uh, let me to repost. I had a, a long conversation with him about this, but the, the problem is, is um, you, you wouldn't be able to get you know miners on board with that here in Bitcoin. I'll, I'll explain that in a minute. Greg Maxwell is another guy who's proposed a very interesting solution. So for the listeners who are interested, Greg Maxwell is a, a Bitcoin core dev, and he uh, has been talking about this idea for three or four months at least. Basically, the idea is this is each hardware, each ASIC uh, piece of hardware is given a uh, assigned a private key that basically activates or resides within a kill switch inside the ASIC hardware. So it's it's soldered on to this hardware and it's made in a tamper resistant package. And so if an outside uh, rogue agent or whatever tries to break the hardware, the, the hardware actually itself breaks, that piece breaks, disabling some of it. So it costs money to repair it. The ASIC can't be used during that time. So there's an incentive not to break these things. Anyways, the idea is this is, and his view, again, I don't, I don't want to put words in his mouth. So you definitely, definitely check with Greg with this, but this is what he was telling me. Um, I met him a couple months ago and he told me the idea is this, is if you, even if you had all these ASICs in one data center, all, all, all these, you know, ASICs that are hammering array are all dissimulation. If they all have these devices, at least in his view, they are enable some kind of decentralization in the sense that you could destroy these pins. So the idea he, he does is, is basically crypto eviction. So if you don't have the private key to, to work with this hardware, you can't use it in the pool. So you need to sign that. Well, I'm not sure what the time reference is. I'm not sure if you need to sign every day, every week or whatever to, to show that you still own the ASIC hardware. Or maybe that's not even the issue altogether. But the idea is, is you could be evicted physically from that location since you're cut off. You're, that machine can't work. So even if you have all the machines in one place in the world, in his view, this could work. He said he's actually talked to some hardware manufacturers and uh, again, I'm not sure how much I could talk about, so I <laughs> probably should talk to him. The idea again goes, goes back to TPM modules, uh, trusted platform modules. If, if listeners are interested, these are crypto processors, basically. Um, Google that. One other possible solution out of all these is uh, another, is you could change the code of, of the Poisson process. So the way Bitcoin works, the block rewards, is it doesn't happen every 10 minutes. You could actually model this in a, in a statistical or a probability chart called a uh, Poisson process, it's or Poisson, or it's, it's a French name. You can't call it poison, even though it's spelled poison. It's named after a French mathematician. Anyways, the idea is it's, it's, it's not, it's very random today. So you might get a block in one minute or you might get a block in 10 minutes. And uh, Dave Hudson has a great article on that called Hash Rate Headaches. Uh, I recommend listeners to, to look that up. And you could actually, if you wanted to, you could try to change that in, in Bitcoin. But again, there's drawbacks to these. And let me explain why this. Uh, it all boils down to, to this. What incentives do miners have to actually implement these? And right now, there's really no incentive to implement anything that's not profitable to them. So they are, remember, miners have some costs. They have to pay back their investors. They have to pay back themselves or so on. And there's no incentive to upgrade to new software, even if these things can actually work. In fact, most miners today, if you pull all the, the miners out there or the nodes out there, the vast majority are using software that's over your old version 0.85 and 0.86. So even if you could technically code all this stuff, you're still running into the fact that miners themselves won't necessarily hash that code or protect that code with their equipment. Even if proof of stake works, for example, that would actually destroy the idea of using seniority subsidies. So again, right now, I'm not sure if listeners understand this. 
the vast majority of the miners are paid by block rewards. These block rewards uh, are paid out in 25 Bitcoins. That's today, based on the, the information on, on the web, it's 99.8% of all of the revenue comes from block rewards and about 0.2% comes from transaction fees. So it's really important to, if you want to get Bitcoin miners on board, to keep the incentive structure in there. So proof of stake, as cool as it sounds, even if it did work and wasn't compromised in some way, is unlikely to, to be implemented because it just destroys the seniority subsidy. Which leads to this, to this issue. Uh, the only people who say this is not really an issue are probably, and this is, again, this is my opinion, this is from what I've done, you know, all this research on is uh, people who are not really involved in the core development team. There's there's an IRC channel with wizards. I actually don't really do it my, much myself. But I talk to some of these people outside of it, and these are where the actual uh, developers uh, hang out at, uh, where Greg Maxwell and Peter Todd all hang out in a room, and they almost without a doubt would say that there is centralization issues. I'm not going to put words in their mouth. They all have their own opinions about it. I've explained some of their the ones above, and then there's people who've never mined before. If you haven't mined, you really don't understand how it works. Probably the vast majority of people who say this is not a problem are the <laughs> are the Kool Aid drinkers and who want to just basically free ride up to a million dollars without actually having to do any work. So uh, again, it's a real issue. If it wasn't an issue, we wouldn't all be talking. It doesn't need Hollywood-sized budgets. It costs Ghash with, with the the price structure they had less than ninety million dollars in hardware to achieve that level last month. So you don't need a billion dollars or a trillion dollars or anything like that. In fact, it's actually even cheaper. That's just a brute force. That you could do all sorts of social engineering things. It would be much cheaper. You could get on an airplane since it's centralized and you know, beat somebody up with a wrench. I don't recommend that, by the way. I don't endorse that. <laughs> There's another paper I recommend looking up, or another, another developer uh, named Andrew Polstra. He's, a, he's another or a graduate student, and I think he's in Canada, actually. I don't want to dox him. He's helped me out with some of my papers. He, he has a paper on decentralization. And once you hit the thermodynamic limit, in his view, where you have the chip fabrication, basically the... There's an S-curve in technology. In, in Bitcoin, you see it, uh, and actually Dave Hudson has a paper on, or an article on this, and you, you see it with CPUs to GPUs to FPGAs to ASICs. And once you run into a fabrication wall, and what I mean by that is basically the amount of transistors you could place in, in, uh, in within a given space. So right now, Intel chips are the, the furthest along at like 14 nanometers, but TSMC, which is where most ASICs come through, are, are just now hitting 20 nm. And the idea is this, is once all these ASIC manufacturers hit the same wall roughly at the same time, you're not going to have these gigantic magnitudinal jumps in performance. So like the last couple of years, you've had, you know, 10, 100,000, you know, X per performance uh, going from CPUs to ASICs or GPUs to ASICs. And that's going to hit a wall. And you actually can see that happening right now uh, with the transition from 28NM to 20NM. Um, so in his view, Andrew was saying, that what happens then is you end up decentralized. You have a commodity, commoditized uh, ASICs. Basically, you'd have players like NVIDIA or ATI, really big semiconductor companies, buying this technology, commoditizing it. So essentially the same, and then everyone would just run it, you know, on a phone or on a router and stuff like that. Uh, the, the problem, again, with this, though, is, is you end up having energy arbitrage, actually. Again, if you're an investor and you have $100 million in equipment, you want to be able to recoup that cost. And so what then becomes the, the linchpin is the energy costs, which Satoshi mentioned at the very beginning, with operating costs essentially equal the value of the token. So you end up to have centralization taking place in certain geographies like Iceland, Finland, 
and China. I actually wrote an article, if people are interested, it's called Bitcoins Made in China. It's based on this arbitrage going on. They have the cheapest electricity basically in Eastern Asia. So uh, some other solutions if listeners are interested in, you could change the hashing algorithm. Script, obviously, uh, if, if you guys aren't familiar with it here in, in Bitcoin, Bitcoin uses something called Hashcash, which was developed by uh, Adam back about 10, 15 years ago. And that's the proof of work mechanism used in, in Bitcoin. In Litecoin, it's slightly different, something called Script. And since uh, you've had this Cambrian explosion of altcoins in the last couple of years, you've had a bunch of different proof of work mechanisms. Uh, one's called Script N, Script Jane, uh, uh, Gretzel, uh, Kickock, Quark. And you have a combination of these kind of being pulled together into, we call these like melting pot um, proof of work. Uh, batches. One's called X11, another one is called X13, and what does 11 and 13 mean are basically that that batch, there's like 11 different ways to hash the algorithm. So it's a combination of of SHA-256, of uh, of script, uh, different ways to uh, change the difficulty. And so the idea is this is for example, Darkcoin. Again, I, I'm not I'm not endorsing any of these coins or projects or anything like that. With Darkcoin, for example, they're using X11. And there's this community buy-in, that's kind of like a social contract, if you will, of, of understanding that once one of these algorithms becomes compromised in the sense that it becomes economically feasible to make it ASIC and therefore leading to centralization, rapid centralization, that the developers would be basically allowed to introduce more proof-of-work mechanisms within it. So maybe it'll go from X11 to X13, X15, you know, X16, whatever. The, the idea is, though, is it's a losing battle in the end. It's a, you know, you're continually doing this cat-house game. Now, whether or not you could string this out for many years, that's a, that's debatable. Uh, obviously, with, with SHA-256, it's lasted for, I guess, five and a half years now, and it'll have legs up until you hit the top of the S-curve. Another potential solution is Git block template. It's bit 32, and this is from Luke Jr. Luke Jr. is a Bitcoin core dev who also does handle the Iliagis uh, mining pool, which has about any, any, any given day is about 8 to 10% of all hash rate. This has actually been around for about two years, but it's not standard. It's that, or I should say, each pool has its own way of, of handling transactions and handling blocks and what they propagate and what they insert into blocks. And this is a way for him to standardize it. And it hasn't been adopted industry-wide, and you know there's this push to try and push people to do that. But obviously, if this is a volunteer decentralized community, <laughs> it seems kind of like uh, counter to that idea. Another solution, this is what Mike Kern proposed. So in April, there was a company called BitUndo, still around. And what they did is it's, they created a mining pool that does what's called a double spend as a service. If you want to, the, the simplest way to, to understand some of this is pause and go Google what double spend is. Um, that's what the, the big issue that Bitcoin was was trying to solve, is trying to prevent, is this uh, ability for chargebacks, essentially, in, in an actual network. And you could up, up until you have 51% of the hash rate, it was, it was believed that you couldn't double spend. But there might be ways to get around that without 51% of the hash rate. And um, there's a company called BitUndo, which advertises what I just said, a double spend is a service a, a, uh, service. So you can actually pay money and you can reverse transactions and so on. Uh, unspent transactions that are waiting at the mempool. Um, anyways, there was a big fight on the Bitcoin core dev list. I'll, I'll post the link to, to the, in the article. And uh, Mike Hearn actually proposed basically blacklisting and whitelisting pools and propagating blocks. And obviously some people are okay with that, some people are not. 
and you know, I, I'm not going to particularly put my my foot down anywhere. But you guys be interested in hearing his his solution. I know Peter Todd might also have some interesting thoughts on that. The last thing I'll mention with this before I go into some other quotes from from other people I've been talking to about this is. Ultimately, who's going to pay for this code? Getting miners to, to hash it is one thing. Getting developers to actually build reliable code for this and test it and make sure it has no security leaks is another issue. It's a public goods problem, and there's many of these public goods problems in Bitcoin, and, and maybe there's a way to solve it with maybe Lighthouse from Mike Kern. But you, you see this kind of misunderstanding with, with some of the community. Like, for example, Jeremy Allaire, he's the CEO of Circle. And he, today, he was quoted in an article from Coindesk, but the, apparently it took place in July 2nd in, in Dublin. Um, he told the devs to step up and create more inclusive process for development. Basically, he, he wants developers to do stuff, but he doesn't explain how they're going to be paid for it. So it's really easy to complain and tell people to do stuff, but you need to come up with a solution for it. So, uh, you know, thankfully, you know, Mike might be helping him out with the lighthouse idea, but it's a public goods problem. And um, unfortunately, Jeremy, met, then he says, uh, he tells uh, how investors are going to secure the network. Uh, basically, outside venture capital is going to come in and build these mining pools, and uh, they're going to demand to make sure this 51% doesn't happen. But the truth of it is, is it's going to probably lead to centralization. Because if you're a venture capitalist or someone with a lot of money, you want to be able to recoup that. So you want to have reliable cash flows. And if you want to have reliable cash flows, you need to build a centralized facility or something is a significant percentage of the hash rate. And you, you want to do that so that way you can lower the variance in payouts and so that way you could have lower orphan rates. Again, listeners, if, if you're not familiar with the orphan, Orphans this is going back to the beginning when you're hashing, when these machines are hashing, they're looking for or they're incrementing a nonce and they're you know specifically going through these calculations and they might end up working on the same thing and end up propagating the same the same block uh, solution uh, as others in their own network or outside the network. And what, what ends up happening is the network has to decide or a consensus is built upon one of those blocks and the a block that isn't built upon called an orphan block and you're not rewarded for that and as a result you lose money essentially so you want to reduce your orphan rate if possible <laughs> and as a result you actually have what we call peering agreements between pools pools are voluntarily entering peering agreements with one another in, in which they propagate blocks to one another as soon as they find it now uh, and i'm not saying this is always going to happen or that everyone's always going to be in a peering agreement but it really defeats the whole purpose of decentralization if you know exactly who you're going to talk to. I mean, it's no longer decentralized. It's decentralization without the benefits of centralization. Is centralization a real issue? Now, Greg Maxwell, he's this Bitcoin core dev. He is a calculator. And what he did is he came up, and you could go, he's just type in Greg Maxwell uh, probability calculator. He found with 40% of the hash rate, uh, the, the attacker success probability is around 50%. So if you control what Ghash did last month, and right now, actually, they're like at 41% again, they have a 50% chance of doing a double spend attack. And if you have 49% of the hash rate, your successful probability is at 96%. And if you have 51% of the hash rate, it's successfully probable at 100%. So the idea is this is any rate uh, above 25% is pretty much what would be considered dangerous in terms of double spending attempts. But there's a financial incentive to, to centralize. There's this incentive to centralize even even after 25 percent because you want to reduce the variance which dave hudson has shown with this the simulation and, and ghash has proven as, as well as these other big binding pools have proven that there's incentive to lower variance and to reduce orphan rates and so 
I'll give you three quotes from, from different observers within this industry, but they're not minor. So I, I wouldn't say there's any conflict of interest. So the first solution is one from Robert Sam. For those of you who don't know, Robert Sam's a former interest rate trader. He worked in a hedge fund for like 11 years, and now he's got a Bitcoin startup doing liquidity. And basically, this is his solution that he emailed me. He says, choose your own difficulty, which goes something like this. A miner can choose what difficulty he mines at, and the reward is some non-linear function of the difficulty chosen. This will allow people with inferior hardware to mine some coins, even though they'll be paying more in electricity for them than the market rate. So basically, that's what's happening today for most miners. This is me interjecting, by the way. Most miners aren't mining profitably. They are essentially holding on to those tokens with the belief that they'll appreciate in value. So Robert continues, the miner can choose what difficulty he mines at, and the reward is some non-linear function of the difficulty he chooses. Most miners, at least marginal miners, are not actually making enough money to pay for their operating and capital costs. Basically, they hold on to the Bitcoin, hoping that it appreciates so they can sell it later. Uh, so anyways, he, he, Robert continues saying, I, I think people will do that as virgin coins have anonymity value. The scheme would likely lead to the marginal cost is greater than the marginal value, which is good, according to Robert. Mining will no longer be profitable. <laughs> you can't sell virgin coins and retain the anonymity value. So Robert continues saying, to my knowledge, this approach hasn't been explored in detail by anyone, but I have a gut feeling that it's promising. The essence of the idea is that the Coinbase is actually more valuable than coins with a history, but it's a value that isn't tradable. If you make it feasible for people to mine some coin in a reasonable period of time, even if the mining costs are greater than the market value of the coin. So if, for example, all the guys buying drugs and naughty stuff acquire the coin by mining under the scheme, feasible if you get commodity hardware, uh, you could have mining economics that make it unfeasible for people to mine on a scale. Anyone who wants to sell the coin to pay for electricity bills, capital expenditures, etc. So that's what Robert Sams uh, provided as a solution, and I could post that. Basically, the idea is just make it so that it's so unprofitable that the only people doing the mining are these marginal players. Uh, the two other solutions, uh, one's from Jonathan Levine. Jonathan Levine, he is the co-founder of Coinometrics, which is an analytics company in this space. Two things uh, he, he mentioned. So the, the first point in his view is to ensure that any new solution does not make it botnet friendly. Basically, uh, uh, listeners, if you're not familiar, botnets are zombie computers. Basically, computers that are infected with malware that uh, externalize the costs of mining. Basically, they cash, but they're not very efficient at it compared to ASICs. They'll be like CPUs or GPU based. And uh, as a result, you end up destroying you know, the life of a computer. That cost is externalized onto you know, big companies or, or home, you know, mothers at home or you know, governments or whatever. The other point he makes that Jonathan says is another simple thing that, uh, that it is, is unsurprising that the Bitcoin network got into this mess as it is economically rational to join the biggest pool. Is this minimizes variance and ceteris paribus, it reduces orphanage rates, uh, orphan rates increasing expected returns per hash. The other point is that there is still hardware bottlenecks, so designing the theoretically most robust system may fail due to market imperfections. So there's implicitly in many arguments that, that Jonathan hears about mining, people assume what he calls perfect competition. And this is what Jonathan could do saying, do we need to remind people that what are necessary conditions for perfect competition, perfect information, equal access to markets, zero transportation costs, many players. This is clearly not going to be a perfectly competitive decentralized market, but it certainly should not favor inherently big players. So those are his two solutions. The last one I'll just mention is Dave Babbitt. Dave Babbitt, he's uh, completing his uh, thesis at Northeastern 
university and he's been modeling he's something called agent-based modeling which is a little bit different than equation-based modeling which most econometricians or e economists use and what his view is is uh, this probably wouldn't have been a problem if they'd modeled bitcoin before it launched uh and he says like as i keep on saying well looking at the huge number of man hours required to get it done agent-based modeling was mature enough in 2007 to do it even certain equation-based models would have predicted it so in, in his view uh the problem though is is abm requires cross disciplines you could say that cross-disciplinary field of agent-based modeling was mature enough, again, back then to predict the centralization problems we have with Bitcoin. So he has some solutions he feels come out about with agent-based modeling. He figures once you have this ABM in process, you could actually build a perfect cryptocurrency or several cryptocurrencies built around this scheme. Again, it's not published yet, uh, but these are some three people to check your eye out on. Robert Sams, Jonathan Levine, and Dave Babbitt. Today's episode, in addition to our LTBC sponsors, is brought to you by CryptoKit. CryptoKit is a web wallet that installs right in your Chrome browser, so it's always there when you need it. I got sort of bored of saying the same thing over and over again, so I clicked the other two tabs on the wallet that I'd never bothered with before and discovered that there's actually a Google News feed over there about Bitcoin, and also a merchant directory. Who knew? A wallet that tells you stuff and sells you things. Check it out at krypto.kit.com. The high sponsorship number on episode 127 is shinybadges.com. It's 23,042 LTB coin and brokered by bitofthis.com's LTB sponsor services. Shinybadges.com is, at first glance, a store selling shiny badges. And you get a free pin if you pay with Bitcoin. Click the Causes button and you'll quickly recognize some noteworthy campaigns of the past year, like the Hoodie the Homeless fundraiser, the Free Ross Ulbrich Legal Defense Fund camel pin, of course, Silk Road, as well as a variety of other tokens ranging from an anonymous pin in support of the Electronic Frontiers Foundation to antiwar.com. I think the phrase goes, you can wear your ideology on your sleeve. If that's something you want to do, Shiny Badges is for you. Man, these are fun. Okay, sponsor number two is CoinFire. I think this is our first repeat. CoinFire.cf is a news source in the Bitcoin space that I recently discovered and have since gotten to know Mike, the guy who runs it a bit. In the last few days, there's been a bit of a kerfluffle where a writer for Medium basically did a sting operation on a bunch of Bitcoin media sources asking how much it would cost to get a quote, unbiased article, giant air quotes, published, which in reality means an advertisement or press release disguised as a piece generated by merit. This is a problem that I've noted a number of times privately, but it's just sort of this embarrassing thing. I can't control that other platforms view editorial discretion as an asset that, in the words of a former Chicago governor, is a valuable thing. This is relevant because coinfire.cf is one of the small handful of outlets who did not have pretty embarrassing results. But rather than receiving accolades, it led to a shower of criticism that they must have paid for the story to be planted. It's been pretty hilarious to watch this, and I want to throw my weight behind Mike and congratulate them on not failing the RU Slimy test. That was an odd sponsor segment, but I think it's the first real endorsement I've given, so I guess that's something. So that's it. If you want to hear an update about LTB coin, listen after the credits. Back to the show. Hey, everybody. Adam B. Levine here from Let's Talk Bitcoin. 
We are checking in again with Tatiana Moroz. Uh, Tatiana and I have been working on her Tatiana Coin project now for, I guess, about, is are we at a month now, Tatiana? Um, we're a little bit over a month since the initial launch, yeah. So it's actually been a little while since we've caught up about this. Can you kind of update people on what you've been doing for the last well, a little while since we've spoken? It's been really, really exciting, but I am a little sad that I haven't been able to keep in touch with everybody because basically where I've been, there's been terrible internet. I was in D.C. for the Bitcoin in the Beltway conference, which was wonderful. Sean's Outpost and my friend Elizabeth Bloche, and they were kind of all hosting it. I spoke on the altcoin panel there, and people seemed really receptive to Tatiana Coin. They still had some questions, and it just seemed like people really liked the idea. Then I went up to Porkfest, where I sang and did a performance for everybody. I also spoke on a panel with MK Lords, Lynn Ulbricht, Stephanie Murphy, Paige Peterson, which I thought was really, really informative and very diverse perspectives. MK Lords was also on that one. And then after that, I went out to the National Libertarian Party Convention in uh, Columbus, Ohio. And that was really cool because, you know, I did my singing thing and people like that. But I got to be on a panel with Jeffrey Tucker and Ben Swan. And this may have been, in my opinion, the best panel I've ever been on, although the women's panel at Porkfest was excellent. It was really cool because I don't feel that any of us are particularly technical. And we had a room filled with people that basically didn't know anything about Bitcoin, but were interested in it. I thought it was a really engaging talk. And by the time we were done, I'm convinced that everybody in there went out and at least did some more research, if not flat out just bought some Bitcoin. So that was really, really cool to see a wider group of people accepting it. You know, the the Libertarian Party is like a little bit more conservative than the anarchist crowd of Porkfest, which, mm -hmm. I mean, Porkfest was just Bitcoin everywhere. So that was really, really fun. And then after that, I, uh, I started my job at Bitcoin Magazine. It was just announced today. I'm their new sales director. So that's been keeping me very, very busy. And um, I mean, my to-do list is... I have like five of them on my to-do list is go over your to-do list, <laughs> which I know that you know how that feels with the launch of LTV coin. Um, and then I'm here right now um, broadcasting from Las Vegas. I'm here for Freedom Fest. Uh, this morning there was a panel with a bunch of folks about Bitcoin and it was sort of the same thing. I don't think it's as good as our panel. You know, at the end they asked for questions and everybody flooded the mic. So even though there's a lot of hardcore gold bugs here, I think that they were realizing that you can actually um, store value in, in Bitcoin as well. It's always seemed like the, you know, people who are who see the value of hard currencies in terms of, you know, monetary metals um, should also see a very similar value in Bitcoin. And yet it's been kind of a slower walk. So you think that we're, we're now it's going to be easier from here on out with that? It's just been around long enough. I think I think we're we're hitting that like rocket ship point. And um, and that's why I'm happy about the Bitcoin Magazine thing, because I feel like in addition to being their sales director, they're really welcoming to a lot of my ideas in terms of outreach and content creation. Uh, we're going to be doing some videos and stuff between my ability to kind of utilize that plus Tatiana coin, plus what's already going on in the space. I'm just so thrilled with how things are going right now. I couldn't be happier. Well, so I want to share with you a little bit about um, what we've been working on with the Coin Powers platform. Because again, Tatiana, your coin was the first one that we launched. We really appreciate you, you know, helping us figure out what works and what doesn't. Um, one of the things that we thought was really good about the campaign was the type of user engagement. And that was just in kind of the backer comments area, where if you had supported and had an account, um, then you could 
post a comment essentially and talk with you directly. And so this is something actually that we've taken and kind of repurposed a lot of what we're doing around with the idea that coin powers in the future is actually less of a crowdfunding platform or crowd sale platform and more of a user engagement platform. So basically, once the campaign is over, you're going to be able to continue to maintain your page and use our tools on the site to actually manage your relationship and your communications with various types of backers. So if you want to, say, have something, you know, you have a a song that's going to come out early and you want to preview it by your biggest fans, um, then you could set it up so that people who have more than a thousand Tatiana coins in their wallet have access to it. But other people don't. They just see it. And so that, and that's like an arbitrary number. If you want it to be 999, you could do that. If you want it to be one, you could do that. If you want it to be none, you could do that. And so like, there's, there's this idea, I think, that really the point of what we're doing here isn't so much trying to raise funds for you as it is trying to connect you with your fans. Because that's the part, I think, ultimately, that was the most important thing when we were initially talking about this was being able to cement that connection and make it so that, you know, because, I mean, once you've got that connection, you can do all kinds of things. You know, if you wanted to do a fundraising thing, well, it actually helps a lot to know who your biggest fans are already. So that's something over the last couple of weeks has really crystallized for, uh, for us at Coin Powers in a couple of different ways. And, uh, and so, yeah, so right now, actually, if you haven't been to visit the Coin Powers site for Tatiana's campaign, you'll notice that there's actually a number of different features there. Uh, in the near future, we're going to have an on-site wallet. And also, we've been listening to the feedback. When you place an order, when you actually support something like Tatiana's campaign, instead of just waiting until the very end of the campaign to actually be able to feel like you have something. We're going to give you a credit for it on site so that you can start doing this type of communication on a per stake basis immediately, Tatiana, instead of having to wait until the end like we're doing now. So again, I really appreciate you letting us uh, figure out a lot of these things with your campaign. And I think that, again, this has been a really great experience for us. One of the things that I'm most grateful about with this experience is realizing just what a cool team I have and everybody I think worked really well together and you know, little bumps in the road when you're learning something, but totally happy to be your guinea pig. And I was going to say that one of my favorite things about doing this coin is that interaction with my fans. I feel super guilty because I've been offline like, Oh, I'm a bad person. I really like that engagement. I like that daily kind of check-ins. As soon as Vegas is over, I'm going to be posting a lot more frequently because I really liked that habit. It seemed like I was getting a lot closer with my fans and they seem to really like it. I think it's a win-win for everybody. Now that, you know, we raised some money, I'm going to go into the studio at the end of August. I mean, we still need to raise more, of course, but teaching people about Tatiana Coin, especially because I'm not only dealing with the Bitcoin space, I have a different fan base as well in the libertarian community, which is you know, obviously um, ripe for Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrency in general. It takes a minute for people to really understand what it is. I like that we kind of took the time pressure off of it. I'm a little sad that some people were sad about the loss of that model <laughs> um, of the of the varying um, pricing structure. But I do think that other folks were having a little bit of a trouble, trouble understanding that. So um, I don't know. I, I I'm just happy to continue to be able to tell people about it and not have that pressure of, well, my teaching moment is going to be only within a 30-day span. Now we can kind of extend it and grow it organically. That's really key. And, you know, that model, I really like that model. I really like the price is figured out basically by how many people want it that given day. 
that's a fun thing if you're a guy like me or you know some of the other guys who like it because we view this all kind of as a game, right? It's trying to figure out how to ma- how to how to play the game the best in order to maximize your effort. And so if you create stuff like that, then you can do that. But for other people who are just looking to literally support you, it's asking them to play a game. So that's the thing. It's like some people who want to play a game and view this like that, they're like, yeah, that's great because it lets you play to win. But on the other side, this is it's just a much simpler model. So again, I think that we're probably going to wind up using both in the future with, with other projects. Really, it just kind of depends. But yeah, I think that, um, again, you know, when we launched your project, everything was manual. Everything was manual. We did the distribution the other day, um, you know, the first 1.5 million, half of the Tatiana coins going out to those people who contributed during the first part of the campaign. I literally had to had to sit there and we had a printout. And I mean, like it, it was it was in a um, comma separated uh, spreadsheet. So it wasn't by hand, but it's a pretty manual process. And just even in a couple of months from now, even in a month from now, you know, since you've done that, we've seen Swarm launch and they have this vending machine set up basically where you just send funds to an address and it automatically sends you back the token. So again, that's kind of where I see your campaign going, Tatiana. By the time you're done with the rest of yours, you're probably going to wind up with like 1.4 million Tatiana coin left to figure out what you want to do with. And that's kind of what I'm figuring you'll want to do is just, you know, put them into a vending machine that lives on your webpage or on the Coin Powers page for that matter or both. And uh, the money would just go directly to you, of course. It wouldn't go through Coin Powers at all in that circumstance. You, you essentially can just build this out. People really are starting to catch on. Um, I'm going to be doing some meetups uh, in the Bay Area, actually, so I'll be visiting you and Crystal. So we're doing the Palo Alto. Mel is throwing a party. She runs the Palo Alto meetup, so we're doing a party at her house. I'm going to give an acoustic concert and talk about Tatiana Coin. Uh, the following day, I'm going to perform at the um, Paige Peterson spot in San Francisco. So that'll be really, really fun, and I'll play a little bit and hang out and talk with people about it. And uh, then I'll be at Coin Congress, and then there's another event um, planning with Catherine Nicholson um, in San Francisco, and then I think there's a Silicon Valley meetup that same time frame. So people kind of have to check in with my site and see where so all the which things is Tatiana going to. All the things. All the things. The only thing that I'm missing, which I'm sad about, is the Chicago conference. I keep getting messages from people saying, you coming to Chicago? I'm like, I have two gigs that weekend. I can't make it. But um, that's a good problem to have. I do have a question for you, Tatiana. You know, I supported your campaign, and I'm curious, are there any of the rewards that are available now? Because you have some things on there that require the album to be produced. But on the other hand, you also have, you know, like Skype with uh, Tatiana. Mm-hmm. And uh, these other these other types of things. So, are are you planning on making those available for people to use their Tatiana coin at some point in the near future? Or do you have a date in mind for that, or are you just kind of um, waiting to see what happens? Actually, people really can be using those right away. I, I don't know. It hasn't even occurred to me to like inform them of their purchasing power. Thank you for letting me know. But yeah, I think that people can start cashing them in and taking advantage of everything right away. We could do it. We should we should talk about how how to how to implement that. But yeah, I mean. I'm available for Skyping. Uh, I'm happy to be performing. I'm, I'm actually setting up a tour. Depends if I have enough time, but I kind of want to do, I'm, I'm playing in Nashville, August 15th and 16th, Night of Clarity with my friend Bob Murphy. And I'm thinking of doing some regional meetups and, and some tours around there. So, I mean, I'm, I'm on the road constantly. I don't know why I don't have more frequent flyer miles. I have to look into that. <laughs> I should be getting something for free by now. 
you can see the posted rates that those things are available for at the Coin Powers page. And Tatiana, I guess we're also going to have to just kind of update your page with with some of this stuff, and again, put it in an interface there where people can interact with you directly. Uh, you know, like you said, I, we launched LTB Coin a couple of weeks ago, and so I'm doing things like uh, we're auctioning sponsorships on the Let's Talk Bitcoin show for LTB Coin to the highest bidder, and we're doing. Um, I'm also auctioning consulting time, two hours a week. And so again, like all of that is super duper manual. It's all happening, you know, on a forum or via email. So, you know, there are tools that we're, if nothing else, we're developing simply because we need them mm-hmm. in order to do this. So yeah, that, that's kind of what I imagine will happen. It'll be on your site and on Coin Powers. Well, you know, I'll be visiting you guys in about week and a half, two weeks. So maybe that's a good time to do it because I know that you're swamped, but if we want to talk about it sooner, I'd love to get that info out to to the people. But I thought that was just going to be for once a fun visit versus like fun plus crypto, but I guess we can never get away from the crypto. (laughs) Exactly. Too much work to do, Tatiana. I agree, definitely. But um, I'm looking forward to lunch over there. Crystal knows how to to keep people happy. (laughs) The kitchen. (laughs) Thank you. Are there any questions in the chat that people have or you think there's anything that people might be wondering about? Oh, I started a women's crypto association. So we're still kind of revamping the site, but if people go to women's crypto, uh, crypto association.com, it's a WCA. It's like our nickname. We haven't really launched it, launched it, but I am putting it together. It's sort of more of like a Bitcoin thought leaders that are women and that are kind of, trying to shape the conversation about Bitcoin and maybe relate to people in a slightly different way. And also there have been some issues in the, in the crypto space where guys are a little too frisky and it's, it can be a little bit uncomfortable for women. So we want to make sure that those lines are really clearly drawn and that people know, you know, this is a safe space and, and we're going to make efforts to kind of help ensure that not to scare people off. It's not like every, you know, place is crazy, but Anything in the tech world, this has been something that I've learned is is super male-dominated and can be a little bit challenging to feel comfortable in. So that's what we're trying to kind of modify. We have a women in venture capital, uh, my friend Elise Colleen. She's one of our members, and she's going to be offering advice on how to pitch. Eventually, I'd love to see us having a board of women venture capitalists, you know, like bit angels, but bit angelas. I don't know what you would call them, but... uh, (laughs) Well, so tell me, what's the difference? You know, again, like, what do you think the difference is between a standard venture capitalist, which I guess you you are defining here as a male venture capitalist firm versus a female venture capitalist firm? This is actually something that Elise educated me on. In the world of venture capital, there's only 4% women. So if you think about that, let's take sexism aside. Either way, men still value projects differently men see things differently than women. So my thought is, is that if you're going to have people pitching and it's always the same type of person that they're pitching to, there's less diversity in the types of innovations that become available. The the entrepreneurship is sort of limited. So I think that if you have women venture capitalists, you have um, a different group of values associated. And also, I think that there's something a little bit intimidating about pitching to a room full of men. I'm not a wuss at all, but I'll admit that that can be a little bit daunting. Not that women are are pushovers in any way, but I think that their feedback can be a little bit more like motherly. (laughs) I don't know if I'm going to get in trouble for saying that because, you know, everybody's always up in arms about how women talk about women's issues. I mean, I know that I, I, I take advice a little bit better from women in certain regards, and I think that there's a certain comfort level. And that's not to say that our organization is very friendly with a lot of men. For example, Andrea Santinopoulos supports our efforts. 
Um, Will Pangman is a big fan. So we want to kind of just open everything up a little bit. And I think that the VC is, is definitely a really important aspect from that. Gabe asked if, uh, if the campaign doesn't end now. And that's actually kind of a two-part question. Yes, the campaign will end. Basically, it was supposed to be 30 days, and then it was extended to another 15 days, so the total campaign is going to be 45 days. I don't know exactly what date we're on right now, but I think we have about 10 days left or 11 days left, something like that, mm -hmm. um, before the end of the Coin Powers campaign. But what we were saying earlier is that at the end of the campaign, in this new model, Tatiana is going to get all of the coins that were claimed essentially by a backer beforehand. So at that point, she'll have the ability to do whatever she wants with them. Again, Tatiana, is it safe to say that you probably are going to put them into a kind of vending machine, and then as you tour and as you meet new people, you'll just point them to that, and as they want to get involved, they can get involved? It, it gives me more time to get people to catch on. I mean, it's the first one. You know, a lot of the people that I know, they barely understand Bitcoin. I think that having less time pressure and just having it be something that everybody can participate in continuously, and as they keep selling and eventually sell out, then their value is going to go up, hopefully. And actually, not hopefully. I know it is because I know what I'm going to create. You know, I'm really excited about August. I am 98% turning down Burning Man. Um, in order to record the album that same weekend over the course of those two weekends that it, that it falls on. So I think that once people see that content being created and they see how many more videos I'm going to be putting out, and I think that the Bitcoin Magazine job sort of gives me a little bit more of a street cred kind of thing. Before you were not full-time in the Bitcoin space, and now you actually have a full-time job in the Bitcoin space. In yeah. addition to your music. Yeah. And a cool job. I mean, the team over there is so awesome. And there's such a, I don't know, there's just like a really great environment where it's like a safe place for launching ideas. And we're just thinking really creatively. I haven't pitched something to them once that they've said, nah, that, that's like too radical or no, we don't want to do that. I mean, they're really open to growing and improving the magazine experience. And I'm looking forward to making alliances with other groups um, and helping them, you know, get involved with us and, and having us get involved with them. Like Liberty.me is my table downstairs that I'm uh, squatting at. <laughs> but luckily me and Jeffrey and uh, Tiffany and the team over there were, were really tight. So hopefully Jeffrey will be writing something. I just, before we got on the air, we were talking with you about potentially um, talking about what, what y'all are doing. So with LTB coin, um, so yeah, I think that there's a lot of really great opportunities to branch out and to work with others, which is really wonderful. Well, I think that this has been a pretty good catch-up. We tend to generally go quite long on these. So, Tatiana, is there anything else that you'd like to talk about? Is there anything else that we should hit here? No, I don't think so. I mean, I just hope that people, if they have questions, you know, write them in, make sure that you're commenting. Please, if you are an enthusiast, share this campaign, tell people about it. I think it's really only going to go up from here. I'm really excited. Um, and I just want to say, Adam, thank you so much for your help. I definitely could not have done this without you. You've been infinitely patient with me and a wonderful friend in addition to a wonderful colleague. So I noticed that you guys are doing those Skype consulting sessions. I couldn't recommend it enough to people. I mean, Adam is amazing and um, ethical and the way that his mind works while being technically sound is really creative. So I don't know, you can work with a variety of people and they're going to get a lot out of it. And I think that people do need that help in order to get into this. If they want to be creating their own coins, I think that there needs to be some sort of a 
hand-holding still where we're not quite there where you just press a button and boom, you've got a coin. Well, in certain ways, I guess. There is, <laughs> well, it just means the coin is the easy part, right? Yes, exactly. And that's totally true. That, that was absolutely found out. You know, I thought it was just going to be like, oh, yeah, let's just make a coin. But no, there's a lot of work that goes into it. And um, Lisa, I know, is still doing some consulting on that. I'm available for consulting. But if you want the real consulting, go to Adam. And, uh, and Amos uh, at Coin Powers has been awesome, too. So I just want to, I guess, finish up with thank you, everybody. Thank you to all my backers. Thank you for all the people that have given us press and support. And even the critical feedback has been really awesome. I love how this is been an experiment and something that we've shared with everybody so there's a great feedback loop there's a great community growing around this and uh, i can't wait to see more artist coins come out there thanks for listening to episode 127 of let's talk bitcoin content for today's show is provided by adam b levine tatiana moroz and tim swanson this episode was edited by adam levine and denise levine music for today's show is provided by jared rubens and general fuzz the LTB network is becoming the platform I've hoped much faster than I thought it would. Dozens of people have jumped in and are already creating projects. We've offered and filled several development roles that grant you compensation in LTB coin, and in general, you can expect both more content and better technology very, very soon. We're preparing a pilot episode of our new game show, Name That Blockchain, which for now must remain a little bit mysterious, but if you think you can identify altcoins based on clues given faster than the other team, Find a partner and send an email to apply at letstalkbitcoin.com. There's still time left on the five forum post promotion. Another two weekly distributions going out each Saturday, totaling nearly 5 million LTB coin remain. So sign up today. All you need to do is head over to the forums at letstalkbitcoin.com, register for an account, and start talking. The new Magic Words Listener Rewards program is still on schedule. I hope we'll be able to try it out together on the next episode, although my desire is not always the limiting factor on our progress. We received feedback on the forums that 48 hours from the release of an episode was probably too little time, and so we're going to expand it to four days, or about as much time as there is between episodes of the LTB show. What do you think of these updates? What do you think about what we're doing? Head over to the forums at letstalkbitcoin.com and earn LTB coin by expressing your opinion and adding to the conversation. Thanks for listening.